You don't need a broker to buy a house in Brooklyn. This is the latest podcast from The Thatcher Report by me, Zachary Thatcher. It's been a while since I've recorded anything, so thanks for your patience. I wrote this in mid-February 2021 after living on the road because of COVID for almost 10 years. (laughs) For almost one year now, but it feels like 10 years. A lot of you have been following my journey, starting in the spring of 2020, when I fled my small, overpriced, jewel-like apartment in the West Village in the first terrifying days of the New York City COVID lockdown. I drove through the night to shelter at a friend's farm in Massachusetts. One night there turned into over four months of farming and running my creative agency from a few short-term rentals near the farm. By July, I had run out of housing in rural Massachusetts, in part because Airbnb is terrible, in part because there is just very little inventory around there. Then another friend, who had recently moved from Brooklyn way up to Vermont, invited me to stay with him, his family, and a few other city refugees. Vermont in summer with good friends? Deal. I'd only been there, I don't know, maybe a week, two weeks at the longest, and Vermont is just an incredibly special place in New England. It's a little bit like Montana or Wyoming or Northern California, but nearby if you're from the region. Up there in Vermont, we enjoyed two beautiful months in a tiny hamlet outside Burlington. A rotating cast of adults and two adorable little girls and a few mice shared a rambling farmhouse house built in 1840 and five acres of lawns and profoundly tall trees. We ate every meal together, helped set up the house, pursued our own projects, and I explored Vermont in my days off. I was grateful for the company of old friends in a transcendentally beautiful setting during a very panicked era. It was just gorgeous. By late August, though, maple leaves pale to gold, and the Jewish New Year holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Sukkot grew closer. I was honestly kind of getting tired of being a house guest. I love my friends. They offered me shelter and society and succor but it had been over six months of living on the road near or with my two oldest friends in the world, Andrew from age four and Jesse from age five. It was time to test an independent life back in the city, meaning New York City, of course. So I came back. First, I crashed at a talented friend's empty apartment in Ditmas Park, a beautiful Victorian neighborhood in South Brooklyn. If you've never been, you've got to go, and the best bar there is Sycamore. After a few weeks, he needed the place back. It was kind of a pied-a-terre, and he and his husband were traveling back and forth from their new home in North Carolina, and I was imposing. So I had to give it up, but by then, I had decided, yeah, Brooklyn, it made sense. I knew people, I could go out on dates, I could kind of restart my life, but in a slightly different location. But where, and for how long? I spent a few manic weeks searching online until I I found a furnished short-term rental in Brownstone in Borham Hill. I'm here as I write and record this. I'm actually in the bathroom as I record this. The apartment is cluttered but very cozy. It takes up an entire parlor floor of an old brownstone, so there are 11-foot ceilings, two really spacious rooms all to myself, and a patio overlooking rear gardens. Morning doves and squirrels land on the deck furniture. They look at me as I look at them and then skitter away. It's pretty nice. I love it here, really, honestly. I would stay forever. But like life, this rental is lovely and temporary. So way back in October, not that long after I came back to New York, I knew I needed to buy a place to feel really and truly settled. Yes, this is privilege. Yes, this is income inequality. Yes, I didn't ask for either. This is just my life. Honestly, 
you probably know this by now if you've been following me at all i'm super progressive i wish more people or all people had access to mortgages and good jobs and some modicum of financial stability my minor successes in life shouldn't be a zero-sum game anyways the reality also is that for all of my adulthood i've only rented small apartments without outdoor space i mean really small apartments by last October, and now this is towards getting to the end of 2020, I was ready to not have a landlord who raises my rent every year. I was ready to have a solid home no one can take from me. I was ready to have more than one bathroom the size of a closet located right next to the living room slash kitchen slash bedroom slash hallway. So since last October, I've been looking assiduously to buy a place. Months ticked by. I visited a handful, then dozens, then scores of open houses throughout the borough. First, I fantasized about buying a brownstone in Crown Heights or Bedford-Stuyvesant, Bed-Stuy. I learned that was impossible to afford. So I pivoted to a floor of a brownstone in a better neighborhood with outdoor space, because I have to have outdoor space. I'm like a wild animal. I then learned that that was impossible to afford. So by mid-January 2021 now, I've been looking for a long time. Our democracy had survived and Biden took over, thank God. But beyond the terror and buoyancy of that month, I was stuck. I hadn't found a single home or apartment to bid on. I felt like a fly banging against a window. I could see the goal, but some invisible barrier kept whacking me in the face. My short-term rental here in this lovely brownstone expires April 1st. That's it. I can't push it a single day, a single month. I've already pushed it from two months to six months. So by January, April felt like it was coming up really fast. So what was I doing about this? Like everyone else in New York City, I had been relying on a real estate broker to help me find a home. Everyone who buys or rents in New York uses a broker. It's an unwritten rule. It's an extortion and it's a fear tactic. Even though there are great websites for listings, particularly streeteasy.com, and there are plenty of attorneys to help negotiations, I'll talk about that later, and you know, people have common sense and can negotiate for themselves, You'll still need a broker to even schedule an appointment to visit an open house, never mind to negotiate a purchase. So this is the whole point of this essay. The brokers are a roadblock and they restrain you from even visiting the property that you might see online. I'll tell you a little bit more about this. So my broker, let's call her Stacy. She is a savvy midlife real estate pro who had decamped to upstate New York because of COVID. During this process, I would never meet her. We would almost never talk on the phone. It was all email and text, which is kind of not great if you're trying to buy something for all the money you have in the world and then more because you're going to be borrowing from the bank. Stacy scheduled appointments for me and reviewed the many listings I sent her from StreetEasy.com, a website owned by Zillow that aggregates almost all New York City listings. So just as a sidebar, there's no MLS. I think it's multi-listing server service or something. There's no MLS in New York City, which is really, really weird. Uh, that's a quirk of local real estate. But this website, StreetEasy, is kind of the same thing. It lists basically all the properties that are available pretty much. But mere mortals can't schedule appointments. You can only view the listed properties. All the scheduling and everything is controlled by brokers. So I was reviewing the site every day for hours. It was crazy. If you think online dating is challenging, try looking fine for housing. Um, occasionally, Stacy also sent me listings, not too often. And uh, really, she was just a scheduler of appointments and she'd tell me the truth if I ask a question about a listing. Uh, eventually, I suppose she'd be a negotiator of a deal, but most of the time she was just telling me uh, listings I liked that she didn't think they were for me or honestly couldn't afford them. And she was usually right. Um, 
But is having an appointment scheduler and a listing seeker person worth 3% of a sale, which in my case would be over a million dollars. So the question is, is it worth around $45,000 for someone to schedule appointments? Couldn't I hire somebody for a few months to do that for me for like $5,000? And anyways, I'm going to have to have a lawyer anyways to do the deal and that's $5,000. So I don't even understand why I need her at all. Honestly, I don't even understand why I need the lawyer because I'm just making a negotiation. We'll get to that. So in case you've never done this before, here's what you need to know. The percentages work like this. A seller has a home she wants to sell. Let's call it a million dollar apartment. To do so, she has to use a seller's broker to create a listing for her home. That means taking good photos, maybe drawing up a floor plan and putting up a website profile. Maybe a few hours of work, maybe a day of work at the most. Then this woman's broker shows the apartment. She handles all the scheduling with potential buyers, you know, emails and scheduling and phone calls. But again, you could just do all of that scheduling with some kind of website or tool like Calendly is one that some people use. There are many, many others. You could even just have a a Google Calendar thing. The seller's broker uh, in this example, uh, you know, gives some advice about decor, maybe offers a staging service if the place really needs it, all of which is going to cost extra, of course. These mid-20th century pre-internet services, the seller's broker charges 6% of the sale. So it's 6% of a million bucks. And then she's going to have to split that with the buyer's broker. That's the understanding. So they each get 3% of the deal. 6% of a million bucks is $60,000. They get $30,000 each for doing something which I honestly think could take a day or two of work. What happens? Where does the $60,000 come from? Well, obviously the seller has to factor that into the price. So she's, instead of charging $940,000 for the apartment, she's going to charge a million dollars. And also think about this. When you have a broker who gets a commission off of a sale, why would your broker ever be motivated to negotiate a lower price that would cut into her fee? She's not. So that's basically a moral hazard, right? The more expensive the sale is, the better everyone does except for the buyer and you're represented by your own broker. So in my mind, the single easiest thing to reduce housing costs and to make listed apartments much more accessible, just eliminate the brokers. We have online tools. Not that I'm a fan of how Uber and Lyft treat their employees by denying that they even have employees, for starters, but they're instructive as disruptors. Why do we need a centralized garage with dispatchers and mechanics and city medallion owners, all rife with corruption and graft, witness the stellar humans like Michael Cohen's taxi business in the 2000s? Why do we need middlemen and infrastructure and cronyism when an app can simply connect a passenger to a driver and the driver maintains his own car, usually like a Toyota Camry or something, which has extremely low maintenance needs. It's much cheaper for him to do it this way. Now, for buying real estate in New York City or anywhere, we need a disruption like Uber if Uber had ethics and civic responsibility, because honestly, Uber and Lyft are horrific businesses and they pretend that they don't have employees, which is a joke. But the point is, I don't need to talk to a guy to talk to a guy to talk to a guy who has an apartment to sell. I just need to talk to the guy with the apartment. So how can we fix this? I know I'm complaining a lot, I tend to do that. So here's a better alternative. Imagine integrating StreetEasy or Zillow or Redfin or Trulia or whatever website you like with your online bank account and your retirement fund or portfolio if you're lucky enough to have one. Integrate as well Google Maps, DocuSign, LegalZoom, and a scheduling tool. Now throw in LendingTree or some other mortgage calculator. 
or mortgage brokerage and calculators. Now imagine this website has a secure, simple bidding system. Sounds familiar? That's what eBay has had for over 20 years. So with this new mega site, you can find an apartment, bid on it, and buy it all in one platform with all verified parties, secure transactions, and no brokers. No lawyers either. All of these systems are already online. I haven't made up a single piece of technology. There is no need for any broker of any kind. Maybe a lawyer, I guess, since the financial stakes are high and our economy is captured by private sector bureaucrats who offer no value to a deal, they simply extract a fee for protection from other lawyers. Hmm, smells like RICO to me. The point about the lawyers? With clear, succinct English language contract templates for an amicable sale, you shouldn't need a lawyer. Save them for when things go south, which is rare in a simple, friendly transaction from one seller to one buyer. I'm not saying lawyers are bad. I'm just saying you don't need to bring a ninja when you're playing uh, poker with your friends. <laughs> the point, the information and the tools are what's important, not extraneous people with their hands out who have gamed the system with corporate lobbying. Integrate the information, remove everyone else but the two parties we care about, buyer and seller. That would be much more efficient and fair. It would also reduce housing costs and it would make things move a lot faster if you could just kind of find something online and bid on it and integrate it with your bank, integrate it with your credit score. It just could all happen within weeks instead of months. To be fair, and I just want to be sensitive to this because I'm not trying to uh, hurt anyone's feelings, one of my good friends is a successful real estate broker here in New York City. And he's a great guy. He's honest. He's smart. He's compassionate. He knows the markets incredibly well. He helped a family member sell an apartment in a jam a couple years ago, and he was utterly amazing. He sold the place in like two days, made money. The buyer was happy. The seller was happy. It was a really good process. I'm proud to call him a friend. I don't want to offend him, but this essay is based on my experience. I honestly don't think that brokers are necessary, at least most of the time, at least for what I'm dealing with, which is just me trying to buy a house. So what happened? So I start looking in October, November, December, January go by. Now it's February as I write this. Now, while I've been looking with my broker, at the same time, last November, I lucked into hearing about a house in the middle of a gut renovation on a not a great block in an okay neighborhood, Crown Heights, Brooklyn, and sort of on the wrong side of the tracks in Crown Heights, I think. I heard about this because an old friend connected me to a broker that he liked. This broker represented the developer for 2% of the sale, no co-brokering allowed. So normally it's 6% divided by two. So the seller broker, the buyer's broker get 3%. This deal, which maybe is common in some parts of New York, I don't know. This deal is just 2% and you can't bring a broker to the table. This one guy handles both parties. It's completely partial and biased, which I think is the same if you have a broker or not, because they make more money the higher the price. So I just don't see what's the difference. So this broker, we'll call him Erez or Erez, he provided absolutely no services or benefits other than greeting me at the door of the house and letting me walk around. But that was his deal with the developer. The owner and developer of the property, we'll call him Yossi, this is what he does for a living. He buys old houses, he renovates them, and he flips them around Queens and Brooklyn. 
So the house that I was looking at that I just kind of heard about from a buddy while I was looking at, you know, very different properties with my more proper official broker. This house is a modest 1920 two-story home that's attached on both sides. It's not one of those gorgeous brownstones. It's much smaller, but kind of a very cute little 1920 house. From what I can tell, it had an extremely old renovation, maybe the original design. It was like an estate sale. It was not in great shape. So the developer was in the middle of gut renovating it, as they say, to the studs. I mean, everything brand new. The ceilings were pretty good height, not the beautiful brownstone heights that I cherish or like a loft apartment of my dreams, but pretty good, uh, nine feet or above. There was a little yard in the back. There was a little terrace over the kitchen. It had three bedrooms, each one diminishing in size like Matryoshka dolls. Those are those nesting Russian dolls. So that was last November. I looked at the house. I hemmed and I hawed, which is my way. I make cows look like wolves. So I saw the house again a month later. And again, a month later that. Keep in mind, it wasn't on the market. It was still being renovated. And I was looking in much nicer areas for my El Dorado, my Fountain of Youth, my Rosebud. Okay, so here's another aside. So I'm working with Stacy, right? We've talked about this. And now I'm also looking at this other house. So how is that with a different broker with a different deal? So how is that kosher? It's kosher because Stacy had given me permission to look independently in certain lower cost neighborhoods serviced by these kind of small brokerages that don't allow co-brokering. It's not her area of expertise and she was okay explicitly with me going out and doing this. As you know, even though I think brokers and lawyers aren't needed for simple, friendly transactions, if you do work with a broker, which you will be bullied into, there are some ground rules, there are some ethics. I felt I had to be loyal to Stacy since she was working for free until a theoretical payout. I never looked with a different broker in the neighborhoods we were looking in, despite being approached several times by brokers. And for her part, Stacy was honest and transparent. She was great. I, uh, it's not a personal uh, observation about her utility in this process. I kept on going back to that renovated house, but it wasn't quite what I wanted or quite where I wanted it. And meanwhile, I was looking at much nicer neighborhoods uh, for smaller places. So, but then, then February comes around. By then I had been living 11 months out of one suitcase and two small backpacks. Like the BB King song, the thrill was gone. I was tired of being on the road. My gig was ending April 1st, like I said. The time bomb ticked louder. Just the thought of moving to another short-term rental made me want to burst into tears. And the thought of signing a 12-month lease, which I had just done 18 years, is just honestly as exploitive. And the rents go up every year. The landlord can cancel a lease at the end of it, uh, you know, decline to uh, have you stay another year. I just didn't want to deal with that anymore. It's just a crummy system. By mid-February, I went back to that 1920 house that was being renovated, and this time was different. I brought along a special someone, who I'm not gonna disclose on this podcast, but I would just say she is beautiful, wise, fun, ethical, talented, and very sexy. Fundamentally, she is a wonderful human, and I'm super lucky to know her. And so far, she seems to tolerate me like a champ, so good for her. I'm really appreciative. I think she's really special. So she came with me, and she looked at the house, and she's like, Oh, I love the exposed brick. Oh, this is a really great layout. Oh, look at all these bedrooms and bathrooms. Oh, there's a yard in the back with a terrace up top? That's great. 
She's the first person who ever saw the house outside of me, and her enthusiasm was genuine and immediate. What do I do? I call my mother. The next day I talk to her, because what is life if not a Freudian exercise in humility? My mom, for her part, demanded I buy the house immediately. Her literal words were, get off the phone and bid right now. Not kidding. No exaggeration. That's how my mom talks. And then one night, I was thinking of Hillel in the Talmud's Perke Avot, which is a compendium of, of wisdom. And he says very famously, if not now, when? The next day, I called the seller's broker, Erez, and bid. I offered a number. Ten minutes later, he called me back. It's too low. Hmm. Okay. I made a slightly higher bid. Ten minutes later, Erez called me back with the magic, magic words. Your bid has been accepted. Mazel tov. So I had made a deal without my own broker in 20 minutes. So I'm going to continue podcasts about what it's like to actually go through the whole buying process because I'm totally new to it and uh, had no idea and maybe it'll help you. But for now, you get the point of the story. I appreciate you listening and I appreciate all your comments and following me on social media and all that kind of stuff. So thank you so much and be well.